This podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Please leave a written review on whatever app you get this podcast from. Spoiler alert, when this podcast talks about Game of Thrones on HBO, it talks in the context of the most recently aired episode. And when it talks A Song of Ice and Fire books, it talks in the context of the most recently released book by George R. R. Martin. You've been warned. Some Ravel performed by Giovanni Umberto Battelle on what's typically a solemn Monday for America. I mean, we all take our holiday, our extra day off, and we mark it as the beginning of summer, but it's truly a Memorial Day is a day to remember heroes who died so that we could enjoy our day off in the U.S., and uh, it's kind of odd. I I didn't really plan it this way, but uh, this is a very solemn episode to be covering, to be released on this very solemn day. The information about this piece, this Ravel piece, can be found in the show notes. The title is French, and my French is terrible. I probably (laughs) butchered Giovanni's name as well, so apologies for that, but... uh, yeah, the title is um, actually rather morbid when translated from the French, so I'll, I'll let you do that on your own. Uh, but anyway, that's what starts off this episode, where we are talking about, of course, one of the most solemn episodes of Game of Thrones, and that's Season 1, Episode 9, entitled Baylor. This particular episode written by David Benioff and Dan Weiss, the showrunners, directed by Alan Taylor. And welcome once again to Matt's audio blog, Game of Thrones Style. I'm Matt, and remember, you can always submit feedback regarding anything that we do here at this podcast, including the music I choose. I do ask that you please support the artists whose music that I play with a click at their website just to see what's going on with them or whatever. That Just ask any artist. That can be a big help, uh, of course. Uh, but if you want to contact me about anything regarding this podcast or about season one, perhaps this episode or or maybe uh, one of the other season one episodes, if you do so by June 2nd, 2018, which is coming up. It's just a few days away. Your deadline is just a few days away, if my math is correct. And uh, you have until then to get into me any feedback, you can do so by sending emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. That's M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com. Or you can tweet to at Matt's G-O-T blog at M-A-T-T-S G-O-T blog on Twitter. Get your feedback in once again by June 2nd to be included in our season one feedback podcast. You can submit later and we'll include you in the season two feedback podcast, even if it's about season one. But Uh, If you want to be in the very first feedback podcast, then June 2nd is your deadline. You can find links to everything that I've done in the past, including all of the back episodes of this podcast, and links to podcast apps where you can leave a written review for this podcast, which helps me stay more noticeable. You can find all of that at mattsaudioblog.com, M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com. As I said before, we're covering Season 1, Episode 9, Baylor, written by David Benioff and Dan Weiss. Let's just get right into it. So, obviously, the most glaring thing in this episode is the fact that, at the time, it was somewhat groundbreaking to kill off who you perceived as your main character in a story. And I'm sure even folks that read the first book, when there were no books to follow yet, thought, did they really just kill Ned? Really? Isn't he, like, the main guy? You know... Uh, And we were all thinking that same thing when we watched the television show, for those of us who hadn't read the books yet. And uh, it was very shocking. It was very disjointing. You know, it's like, how do you tell Sean Bean that he's the headlining star, but he's only going to be in nine episodes? 
I suppose, in today's likes, um, I just recently watched uh, an episode of The Terror where Kieran Hines, who I think has top billing on that show, uh, was killed. And it, that was only like the second episode of a 10-episode thing. So uh, was it the second or the third episode that he was killed in? I can't remember now uh, because we're like on episode four or five now. But anyway, my point being is that it's not as uncommon now, especially from adaptations coming from books. It's easier to kill people in books, I guess. Um, but uh, to do it in TV, uh, this was a fairly new convention back in, what was that, 2011 when this happened? You just really didn't see that that often. You did see it occasionally, but not that often. And as shocking and as jarring as it was, I remember that this is the episode that actually got me into podcasting about Game of Thrones at all. I have buddies who now run Podcast Winterfell. Um, they're all part of the DVR podcasting network. And, and one of the podcasts that's part of that network is The Film List, run by Mr. Heath Solo. Um, who's an old lost podcasting buddy. In fact, all of those guys from the DVR podcasting network are all old lost podcasting buddies, really. But uh, anyway, Heath had what we called at the time an emergency podcast to deal with the fact that they had just killed Ned. And there was a little bit of denial in there, and there was a lot of crazy speculation and, and all this other stuff going on. You know, some wild ideas came out of that. And I was like, oh, cool. This is a, you know, I've been watching this show for nine episodes now. And we really have something to super talk about besides just one scene with White Walkers. Maybe some one of these guys will start a podcast <laughs> uh, about Game of Thrones. Turns out I waited three months, four months. Nobody did. You know, it's like it's getting into the fall. Christmas is approaching, and nobody has actually started a podcast on this, and I was waiting for it. And I was like, are we all just going to go on the film list and talk about it once in a while, rather than on a weekly basis? So I started Podcast Winterfell. And again, you can find both Podcast Winterfell and the film list over at dvrpodcast.com. But I developed Podcast Winterfell simply to satisfy the fact that nobody else seemed to be wanting to start a Game of Thrones podcast at that time. So I started it, and those guys jumped on with me for a while, and then they started their own, and, and eventually I, I gave Podcast Winterfell to them because I thought I was getting out of podcasting. Now I'm back. I never stay gone for too long, I guess, but uh, I have a hard time recollecting what was once mine uh, once I've given it away. That would not be cool. So instead, I just started this one uh, so that I can just uh, record at my own pace uh, and, and stop when I need to breathe because uh, it's still a little bit taxing for me right now to record. I'm still on oxygen at the time of this recording. But uh, anyway, we started podcasting about Game of Thrones. All of us did really basically due to this episode. So that Ned's death was a huge deal. And I don't want to belittle that because at the time it was a huge deal with no other context. But what I do want to say, and this is again, just all stuff on the surface. I'm not making Ned's death one of my big three things. Um, it's not big. It, it's still very emotionally taxing, uh, emotionally important. But I, I, I just can't place it as a big thing in the overall course of the story. Ned's death still is huge, just not for the same reasons that it was back in 2011. And that's not to say that I don't get a tear in my eye when, especially uh, watching it this time around, when Ned, like, screams the word Baylor about the statue to Yorin. Because he's seen Arya, and he wants to make sure that Yorin makes her safe. I mean, that, I don't think has hit me as hard as it did this time. Any other time that I've watched this. But it was just like the desperation of a father to help his little girl. And his other little girl's up there in the arms of the king. So what can he do about that? But there's Arya all by herself, standing there. 
watching her father who is going to go up there and tell a lie. He's going to basically give a confession that is untrue, which Ned should be good at. <laughs> when you look at it, when you look at it in today's perspective, it's like, well, that shouldn't have been a, that big of a deal for Ned to lie because he's been lying ever since he came back from Dorn. He's been lying. But uh, nonetheless, just that desperate moment of saving his little girl. And maybe because he knows that Arya had already told him, that's not me. She would be the fighter. She would be the person that would try to save him and get herself killed, as opposed to Sansa. And believe me, when when all of this happens, uh, and in the next episode, when, when Sansa faints, I mean, it's all just so uh, gut-wrenching. It It really is. But in the overall scheme of the story, Ned's death really doesn't mean as much. As, as emotionally impactful as it is in the story, he really doesn't change anything. Rob's already moved south. He's already winning over Jamie. And he has Jamie as a prisoner, which means that now the Lannisters have at least Sansa and the Starks have at least Jamie. And if Tywin is as dogmatic about you shall not hold any of us in impunity, then Ned's confession isn't going to stop the war, as Varys might have hoped. Ned's confession isn't going to do anything, whether he's allowed to go to the wall or not. Again, one bright side of this would have been that if Ned had been allowed to go to the wall by Joffrey, then at least John would have known who his mom was. And even though we know now that John will likely learn from Sam and from Bran, if he ever gets back to Winterfell, it, it seems like Ned's whole purpose was to fail. And that's kind of sad and emotional in itself. Seven seasons later, John still doesn't know who his mother was. Like I said, he's likely to learn soon. The war ended up happening anyway, and I believe would have ended up happening, continuing to happen anyway, regardless of whether Ned was allowed to survive or not. The big takeaway here is just that George is saying, being honorable doesn't mean winning. And I've found myself even questioning Ned's overall honorable traits because of the secrets that he carried to the grave with him. And the fact that he went to the grave with his last words being untruthful anyway. I mean, that teaches us that good intentions don't win either. I know that he was trying to save his daughter. But you saw where that got him. Again, <laughs> I know I sound like I'm, I'm, I'm dancing on the corpse of a dead man. I'm really not. Because it doesn't make anything less sad. It's just to me that overall, Ned's death... And maybe it's because this is the first of a long line of Stark deaths. All the way through season three, we're just pummeled by Stark deaths. And it, it almost became the point in the course of this series at one point where we got more excited about trying to predict who was going to die than about what kind of emotional impact the story had on us. And to me, that's not good. Because here is the perfect blend of surprise and emotion. But then it just kind of runs amok from that. So after you get through a season three or a season five, Ned's death seems less game-changing and more like just a precedent for the norm. And again, I apologize if I sound callous about it. I'm not. I hope that I, I showed you what kind of, of emotion that I have in regards to how Ned's death impacted me emotionally. It's just that it's not as big of a story point as I think that some people still cling on to. But hey, that's just me. So since I'm not making that part of my three big things, uh, but instead just to decided to lead off the podcast with it, maybe that makes it more important than my three big things. I don't know. You decide that. But here are my three big things. Big things. Number one, Daenerys. 
And now all the pieces are in play to finally bring the dragons into the world in the next episode because the call is about to die or be put to death by Danny in the next episode because of the state that this ritual that Mary Mazdor performs leaves him in. And I think even Kothro says in this, basically tells us directly that Mary Mazdor made Drogo worse. Whatever she packed into that thing to keep the wound from festering made it fester. Now, you can say, well, it was just circumstance. I think it becomes pretty clear that this is what happened. This was revenge. Again, I can't really blame Mary Mazdor for wanting to take revenge against Drogo. But then by doing the magic, although it is Danny that makes her do it, but by doing the magic in that ritual, as we know, there is always a cost to the magic in this world. And in this case, it's a life for a life. Danny thinks it's going to be the life of the horse. But of course, as soon as the ritual starts to happen, that's when she starts having the problems with the baby. And we learn in the next episode, of course, that it is the baby that was the price for Drogo to be semi-alive, to be breathing, not much else. And Danny, more or less, because she loses the child, because she loses Drogo, or has to part ways with Drogo because of the way that he is, this is Danny's graduation. Miriam Asdor then becomes the price for the magic to bring the dragons into the world. Uh, it's it's gut-wrenching in a way, simply for the fact that Danny is the one that has to lose everything. But that's part of a hero's journey as well, right? Without the loss, there usually isn't the motivation to go forward by most heroes in these kind of big epic kind of tales. So it fits the pattern. As much as we all like to say that George is somewhat different in the way that he tells stories than typical storytelling fashion. He still uses a lot of the same tricks. He just manages to disguise them a little better sometimes, I think, than some other writers. But the essence of a good story, the qualities of a good story, tend to be the same at their roots, one way or another. And again, if you're Mary Mazdur... Is it any different what she does to Drogo than, say, if a Polish citizen had a chance to take out Hitler, personally? Would that Polish citizen take that chance? Maybe not. Maybe not out of fear. Maybe Mary Mazdur shouldn't have out of fear. But she's really got nothing to lose. As she tells Danny in the next episode, she's already lost everything. And Danny grants her losing everything in the next episode, no doubt. One thing that... Uh, I was paying attention to this time around was Jorah and he was trying to get Danny to get away just as soon as Drogo went down because he knew what was about to happen with the Dothraki horde. And it makes sense. You know, I mean, Jorah, he's already fallen in love with Danny evidently in a lot of ways. And so he's just trying to save her life. The interesting thing is, is the fact that she resisted him. That's actually what probably brought the dragons into the world. If she'd have just ran off, I don't think the dragons ever would have been born. I don't know that she would have found a way for them to be born if it hadn't been for all of this loss. And she would have just been mother to a half-Dothraki son who would have been hunted the same way that she would be hunted. The same way that Robert was hunting her, her son would have been hunted by the Dothraki horde. So she was probably going to lose this baby anyway. And we'll talk more about the baby in the next episode because there's some interesting things in that as well. But yeah, this is the, the final domino that falls that starts everything towards the dragons. And it's all been building up for a while. But this is, uh, this is the point of no return, so to speak. Because Danny's only choice from this point is to get those dragons into the world or die trying. And I, I have a feeling that either way would 
be okay with her at that point. Again, <laughs> I don't know why Danny loves Drogo so much, but you can't choose who you love, right? That's what Jamie Lannister says. And I've got another Jamie comment in a few minutes when we get to our tidbits. But for now, let's move on to my second big thing, and that is the twins. It's amazing how much the phrase seem impactful now, post-Red Wedding, and post-Aria's Revenge for the Red Wedding as well. The twins have become a big story piece. And I remember commenting last time about Arya being a person that you kind of root for when she's a cold-blooded killer, but at the same time you're concerned for her. And then you think about the fact that Walder Frey was just as ruthless as Arya, or more so. Why don't we give him the same kind of glee? Well, because we love the Starks. You know, but this is this is the deal. This is the deal that causes the Red Wedding. Catelyn's deal more or less seals her own death. And the terms of the deal is Rob is to take this squire on, Oliver. And I, I when I heard that name this time around, I was wondering, wait a minute, is that the Oliver that ended up at King's Landing working for Littlefinger? Probably not, but what is funny when it's just a throwaway name, then it seems like Oliver's your guy. And of course, Rob commits to taking one of Frey's daughters as a wife. And that, of course, is huge. That's what causes the Red Wedding, the fact that he marries Talisa instead. The one thing that I'd forgotten was, and of course, this will never have to be honored now, I don't suppose, is that Arya was to marry a Frey as well. Arya was to get married. <laughs> and when you think about how Arya doesn't want to be uh, the lady of a castle, imagine how awful it would have been for Arya to be the lady of a Frey castle. So it's good that she took care of all of them. And um, they didn't know who she was until it was too late. That's for sure. My third big thing, and there's a lot in this episode, is John. First of all, John gets Longclaw, and we're told it's a Valyrian steel sword. And we've learned over the course of several seasons that Valyrian steel, I guess it was Hardhome, was the episode where John first used a Valyrian steel sword against a White Walker, and it cracked him. The same way that the dragon glass cracked one that Sam used. So um, it's huge. And now it's been made in his honor. It's got the wolf on it. It's a shame that it didn't get uh, a dragon head on it, right? Yeah. You know, maybe John will change it once he finds out. Maybe he won't. I don't know. But John getting that and the fact that Mormont sent. Alistair Thorne South, in order to keep the two of them apart, basically tells you that Mormont has chosen John to be a potentially better leader than Alistair Thorne. Now, I say potentially because I don't think John's proven himself yet. He's had one act of heroism, which left him burnt, as we saw in this episode. And the other thing that I thought about when John got Longclaw was the fact that in season seven, Jorah Mormont sees something of his dad's and his family's for the first time since he was exiled. Here, Jorah comments that his son had dishonored the house and had ran off, and at least he had the honor to leave the sword behind. But I guess... Jor Mormont, who is Jor's father, of course you all probably remember that, doesn't have anybody to leave it to, I guess. And I keep thinking, man, that sword should have been passed down to little Liana Mormont, right? She's the one that uh, talks a big game. She needs a big stick to swing around. But I think John will put it to pretty good use against the White Walkers. I'm pretty sure of that. Speaking of Jor and Jorah, Think about this. You think about 
the fact that it, this is really the first time that Gior tells us that his son is Jorah, even though we already have put that together, probably in a prior episode. But then you think about how Jorah had to learn of Lord Commander Mormont's death from Tyrion in season five. And with John, th- this is big too. I mean, John hears from Sam about what Rob is doing. And naturally, he wants to go fight with Rob. And then he has that talk with Maester Eamon. And you learn a lot about May Eamon. This is the first time that a TV audience learns that Eamon is actually Eamon Targaryen. And that, I guess, according to this chronology, which I don't think is exactly the same as the books, but they've made it this way in the show, so this is the way it is for people who are watching the show. Aemon is basically the Mad King's uncle, I believe, because it was his brother Aegon. Hey, there's Aegon. Everybody always says, well, why is John being named Aegon so important? Well, because there were a lot of Aegon Targaryens who were good rulers. Now, I don't expect you to know the history of the Aegon Targaryen who was the father of the Mad King in this TV universe, but... Almost all of the Aegons, save maybe Aegon the Conqueror, who was just, he brought his dragons in and just took everything over. He did allow Torn Stark to bend the knee and kept the Starks as Wardens of the North. It's not like he just blew them all out. He only took out people who resisted him. He, he made peace with those who did not. So maybe Aegon the Conqueror wasn't that bad either. And if you are familiar with any of the history of this particular Aegon that Aemon is brother to, then you will know that he was a pretty decent king himself. You don't have to know that. But the way that Aemon even talks about him here makes you see that Aemon cared deeply for him. And as a proxy, he cared deeply for Aegon's son, Ares, the Mad King, even. And cared deeply for Aegon's grandchild, Rhaegar, who was killed. And great-grandchildren who were killed by the mountain, who Oberyn Martell is, you know, enraged by. On the order of Tywin Lannister, according to Catelyn. So, all of that history is right there. And Aemon's words to Jon is to say... I'm not going to tell you what to choose, but I'm going to tell you that it's hard to choose the right thing. And you learned that very lesson with Ned. The right thing for Ned to do was to stand up there and say, Joffrey Baratheon is not the correct heir. Since he was going to get his head cut off anyway, he might as well have. He didn't know that at the time, of course, and he was trying to keep his daughter safe. So, okay, his hands were tied, literally. But... Just like Eamon is asking John to make the hardest decision ever, to forsake family for duty. That, that was a very interesting way to juxtapose this with what was going on with Ned. And really how, in every instance, Ned always chose family over duty. He chose the Tully way. Maybe that's why Catelyn loved him so much. Family, duty, honor. Those are the Tully words. We learned that from Bran. Maybe Ned should have been a river lord instead of someone from the north. <laughs> I digress. Questions. 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 Really, it comes from this thing I was just talking about with John. John talking with Maester Aemon, love is the death of duty. Does John prove Aemon wrong when he's talking about Ygritte? Or did John never love her? Because if John is right with Ygritte, if John truly loved Ygritte and still was able to perform his duty, then love is not the death of duty. Maester Eamon is wrong. And Ned was just as much right as Eamon was wrong. But I don't know. What do you think about that? Is love the death of duty? And if it is, where does that put John? He came back in the next episode even though he was going to go fight with his brother Rob when he found out that Ned was dead, 
Uncle Ned, not Father Ned, as he thinks, and still thinks seven seasons later. <laughs> but did John prove Eamon wrong with Egret? Or do you think that John just never loved Egret? Because I kind of feel like John did love Egret, especially with the send-off that he gave her. But I'm not certain what that says about the phrase that Maester Eamon gives here, which is love is the death of duty. Give me your interpretation. You can send an email to Matt's audioblog at gmail.com, M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com, or you can tweet at Matt's G-O-T blog on Twitter. You have until June 2nd, 2018 to get it in by our first feedback podcast. So that's just uh, later on this week, I guess. Yeah. Another question here. Uh, and again, this is the whole honor thing. Ned says to Varys, do you think I would trade my honor? And this really comes from what I hear from Jamie Lannister as well. We hear about how honor from Jamie's perspective throughout the whole series, how it conflicts with itself really often because Ned lied his whole life about John. But he won't lie about Joffrey, at least not in that moment, until Varys dangles Ned's children in front of him. But is lying about one any less honorable than lying about the other? Did he commit just as much of a dishonorable thing to save his children? And it does come down to this same, is love the death of duty? thing is love the death of honor thing so much to dig in right there let me know what your thoughts are about those two questions or if you have any other questions regarding this particular episode or you have any thoughts about my thoughts about this particular episode you can send emails again to matt's audio blog at gmail.com or m-a-t-t-s-g-o-t blog on twitter Here's some tidbits. Tidbits. Since we see Varys say that Ned could spend the rest of his life with his brother and his bastard son, and the fact that Varys backs Daenerys Targaryen, I suppose that that means that Varys never knew about Jon Snow. Which implies that Littlefinger actually seemed to know something more about Jon Snow. I don't know if he knew who Jon Snow was in terms of his lineage, but he certainly seemed to know a little bit about Rhaegar and Lyanna. And there's nothing to suggest that Varys knew anything of that, or at least not about the fact that Jon, who was passed off by Ned as his own bastard, was anything but that. And maybe this episode... I know we, I said an earlier episode seemed to be a lot about mothers. This episode maybe seems to be more about fathers. You have Drogo, who is the father to Danny's baby, leaving. You have Ned, who is the father to Sansa and Arya and Rob and all of them Stark children, leaving. And then you have this dynamic between Tyrion and Tywin and this story that Tyrion tells Shay and Bronn about his wife and the fact that Tywin did what he did because the woman was someone that Jamie hired. And you juxtapose that with the fact that Tywin's more than willing to send Tyrion into the vanguard and the fact that Tyrion mentions that he basically killed his mother when he was born. So all of the reasoning behind Tywin wanting to send Tyrion into the vanguard is right there. His son killed his wife. And it's interesting, his son will end up killing him as well. But this whole bit about Tyrion's wife, and he's telling it to who? Shay. And that whole dynamic, which will come up throughout the seasons. First, Tyrion trying to protect Shay desperately. 
from the likes of Cersei. Then Tyrion trying to protect Shay desperately from the likes of Tywin. And then finding himself betrayed by Shay. I think out of hurt more than anything. But we'll have to wait till we get to season four to talk about that. Probably. Unless there's something else that comes up that might bring it up in the future episode. And then the ultimate betrayal of finding Shay in Tywin's bedroom. Uh, I mean, this is a strange father-son dynamic going on here as well. So what do you think? Is this episode all about fathers in a way? And what fathers will do for their children or what fathers won't do for their children or what fathers can't do for their children, like in the case of Drogo. I think that's all I've got on this episode in terms of my own thoughts, except for three words, which is next. Three words. Describing the episode in three words. Three little words. Oh, what I'd give for that wonderful phrase. To hear those three little words. Three words. This is where you try and describe the episode in three words. And you can submit a three-word description for any Season 1 episode, but time's running out. You only have until June 2nd, 2018 to get yours in for our first feedback cast, which will be coming out just a day or so after that deadline. So please be sure to submit yours by sending an email to Matt's Audio Blog, M-A-T-T-S Audio Blog at gmail.com, or to tweet at Matt's G-O-T Blog, M-A-T-T-S-G-O-T blog on Twitter with your three-word description of an episode. This one, last week's ones, next week's ones. No, next week's ones will be too late. Can't do that. You have to do this week's ones or last week's ones or any week before that. As many as you want. We're going to include them all into one big three-word segment. Because I know how much you all love this background music, right? No? Oh, well, too bad. I do. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) my three words for this episode. First of many. Because Ned is the first of many Starks to go the way of the Dodo. It's sad, but it's true. Ned is just the first in a long line. Although, I mean, technically, now that we know what happened to Benjen and the fact that he's kind of like half dead, half alive, whatever he was right before he uh, came and saved John, which I guess would have made him completely dead after that. But before that, uh, he, I guess he could have been made the way he has been before Ned died, which would make him technically the first of many. But since he didn't get completely dead... I guess that doesn't qualify either. Anyway, first of many. What are your three words for this episode? Uh, Bye-bye, Ned. One single tear. I don't know. Ellen Payne's chop. Ooh. I know. I shouldn't be making fun of it. This is a serious episode. And I don't mean to be making light of what many people thought was the loss of the most honorable man in Westeros. I question that, naturally, because I question everything uh, to a certain extent just to entertain you. uh, To another extent, because I'm inquisitive that way. That's it for the three words for this one, but be sure to submit me yours. Again, mattsaudioblog at gmail.com or mattsgotblog on Twitter. And the best coupling of the episode. That's what we call the brothel mates of the episode. That's coming up next. Mates of the episode, the best couplings of the episode. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very 
extraordinary he is even more than anyone that you adore can love is all that i can give brothel mates of the episode that's axel foley by the way uh who is from the dvr podcast network doing that little introduction bit there and uh don't forget they're doing uh westworld is back right westworld is back now i think or it's coming back so uh they always they have a a westworld podcast be sure to check that out also be sure to check out my old podcast podcast winterfell whenever they drop new episodes over there at the dvrpodcast.com and the best coupling of the episode doesn't necessarily have to be two people it can be a person and an object or a person and an idea or a person and an emotion or what have you. And I often do not go with a traditional two people kind of thing. But this time I am. I'm going with Tyrion and Shay because they just hit it off so well. He has money. She wants it. And eventually what happens is that they kind of flourish into a companionship. I won't be a person to call it love as I think they come close to saying a couple of times Um, I find that a little false but um, it is a deep companionship that they appreciate from each other uh, from here forward and uh, because I probably won't put them together as the brothel mates of an episode for any other episode since here they're kind of on neutral ground and no one has the upper hand um well, I guess you shouldn't say that. Actually, Tyrion, the guy with the money, always has the upper hand if the girl needs it. Or vice versa, if it's the guy who needs the money and the girl has it um, in today's day and age. But, um, yeah, that profession is not okay, people. It is not okay. However, the relationship that kind of blossoms out of this seems somewhat okay to a certain extent later on. Much later on. Not right now. So, uh, they get my best coupling for the episode. They get my brothel mates of the episode. How about you? Do you have a best coupling for this episode or any season one episode? Be sure to get it to me by the end of this week, more or less. If I'm doing my math right, June 2nd, 2018 is the deadline. And that's midnight, wherever you are in the world. Say it's midnight, June 2nd, 2018 in Moscow, and you live in Moscow. Well, then you have run out of time. Or if it's midnight, June 2nd in Honolulu, and you live in Honolulu, then you have run out of time. The trick is that if it's midnight, GMT, Greenwich Mean Time, on June 2nd, 2018, and you live in the United States, you have a precious few hours left to get yours in. So, please, indulge me. Let me share yours with the rest of our listeners. I'd love to have a huge community going here by the time Game of Thrones comes back. Uh, But right for now, you know, I'll just take the feedback when I can get it. And I'll thank you properly at the time, and I'll thank you in advance now. We've got one more segment for this episode, and that is my analysis of the music. And this time around, really, the only things that were really going on with the music were themes that we had already covered. There was a beautiful edition of the Stark theme this week, uh, but I decided to forego that because with Drogo falling off a horse, this is the last time that we'll likely get to cover at least most of the theme that we know as love in the eyes that's next analysis of the music in HBO's Game of Thrones.
So right there that you just heard is from the official soundtrack of season one. It's the cut entitled Love in the Eyes. And really, uh, the entire cut, and you only just heard a snippet of it there, has all three of Danny's themes that go all the way up till season three until she gets to the Unsullied. All of the themes that we hear associated with Danny are in this particular cut. And it happens during the scene where first she has Doria teach her how to love Drogo better. Then she's staring at the eggs before Drogo comes in. And then she takes control in the bedroom. And there's three different themes that come out of this. Uh, The first one that you heard there uh, was more or less her relationship with Drogo and the Dothraki in general. Actually, the first time that you ever heard this theme was in the very first episode during the wedding rape that Drogo did um, when he was saying no, no, that, that you was hearing this melody at that time. And it's interesting that this one seems very sad, very somber, because here Danny is a subject to the Dothraki. She's not the leader of the Dothraki. She is subject to the Dothraki. Whereas when we get to the one at the end, she'll be the leader of the Dothraki. She is the fire and blood Danny. Um, but first this one, uh, let me again play it for you on the piano because this is the part again where actually she's asking Doria to help her be a better lover for Drogo and Doria's teaching her um, some things and you even hear the Dothraki drums in there uh, while Doria's doing her thing because she's like, you know, they're, they're with all the Dothraki and I guess since Danny's trying to please a Dothraki, maybe that's why those Dothraki drum rhythms come in there while they're playing. But the interesting thing about this one is, once again, just like with the Aria stuff that is associated with Bravos, which is in the continent of Essos, this particular theme is also based on the harmonic minor scale, like I talked about in the last episode. Now, you don't need to know the name of that. All you need to know is that it sounds exotic. The melody, again, sounds like this. And I've talked about the shape of melody before and how that can dictate things as well. And the fact that this melody tries to rise up, but then sinks back down. And in this kind of almost sad way, because of that exotic sound, the way those last two notes, the way they fit together, the way that second to the last note doesn't really fit the scale. You know, there's an uncomfortableness to that. And that's because, you know, here Danny is still a subject to things. But primarily, this is about her and Drogo and her subjugation to Drogo. So later on in this very same cut from the OST, and again, basically from the exact same scene in season one, episode two, The King's Road, we have Danny's connection to the dragons, which we've already covered this theme, of course. We've already covered it um, in a prior episode. But let me play that melody for you again, and then I'll play it for you on the piano. First, here's the clip. I'm sure you'll recognize this again if you've been playing along with the podcast. That is the dragon eggs 
lightly calling out to Daenerys as she's waiting for Drogo to arrive, more or less. They're giving her the power. They're giving her the courage because within her is the dragon. And these dragon eggs are reaching out to the dragon, to their mother, and they are filling her with just enough courage to say no. Here again is the melody on the piano, and like I said, you've heard this one many a times when she's with her dragons. Now, in the soundtrack cut itself, that happens around the 145 mark. We're moving on to the 208 to 210 mark, somewhere in there. And this is where Danny's fire and blood theme comes where she is no longer really subjugated she is now moved to being the ruler which is essentially what has happened in the last couple of episodes of that we've been watching is that she's starting to uh, be able to use her power in the bedroom she's already mastered drogo and this is when she is mastering drogo for the first time in the bedroom in season one episode two the king's road this is the music that plays when Drogo finds out that he doesn't have to do it doggy style with Daenerys. He he actually likes looking at her face, that she would have him look upon her face. It's the phrase that she uses in order to be able to resist the way that he's just been basically animalizing her um, in the past. And you see in that scene that Danny actually finds that she really enjoys this too. So um, maybe that's where their kind of love comes from. I don't know. Uh, again, I never could understand why Danny would love Drogo. But at least here, now she has secured the power. It's one less fight that she has to have is with Drogo uh, each night. And um, that's a victory for her. And so this theme is often associated with a victorious Danny, with a savior Danny. This is the theme of her mastering Drogo. This is the theme of her birthing dragons. This is the theme of her freeing slaves. Once again, all of the themes that really are associated with Danny all the way up until the time that she frees the Unsullied. Then we get a new theme that is about kind of like warmongering Danny, but we'll cover that when we get there because it doesn't show up until Astapor. But there you go. There's the essential Danny. Here, let me just play this on the piano again, just so you keep this in your head because. Goodness knows how many times Ramin has used this theme for Danny scenes ever since she mastered Drogo in this very scene from season one, episode two, The King's Road. So there you have it. Again, three important themes all in one scene. It was pretty great the way that uh, Ramin weaved all of these together and very early on so that he could pull from them in different places like Daenerys with the brazier for the dragon connection theme and such. And again, this is a melody that you hear throughout the series. Well, up until the last episode that we saw and we've, we've heard this theme a lot this last one. And uh, we will continue to hear it. I'm, I'm assuming as long as Danny is still alive. And uh, I kind of now, even though I don't know what to think exactly, but I kind of now hope that Danny somehow makes it. I would like to see Danny go back to Essos and rule while John rules in Westeros. That would be kind of cool. 
Targaryen world domination. Yay. But I don't know. That's just, that's, that's fangirling. That's not theorizing. That's just fangirling. Anyway, uh, speaking of fangirling, I have, uh, I'm going to leave you with this cut from season six where Jorah shows Danny his grayscale and she forgives him and tells him to go find a cure. And this again is that victorious fire and blood queen theme. But amazingly there is because of the chords that he puts underneath it, the way he makes the melody change keys. It makes it more emotional because Danny doesn't know if she's ever going to see Jorah again. And she's really torn up. I mean, for me, this was an incredibly emotional scene because Jorah just kind of put it all out there and she forgives him. And that was a beautiful moment. Um, and she orders him to find a cure. The cut is called on the season six official tra- soundtrack. I need you by my side. But this scene, uh, it just really got me. And we'll leave you with that. Be back with some closing thoughts in a moment. Thanks for joining me on this Memorial Day or whatever day you happen to be downloading this. Don't forget, you only have a few days left to get me any Season 1 feedback. If you want that feedback included in our first feedback podcast. That podcast will be coming out a week from today, but you only have until June 2nd, 2018 to get the feedback in. So that I can record it and then put the podcast out. Uh, So... You get that work done. In the meantime, I'll be prepping episode 10 for you, where we'll cover the finale of season one of Game of Thrones. Already through a full season. Wow, that's gone by quickly, right? Well, it's gone by really quickly for me, because I'm doing a podcast about every other day. You're at least only getting two a week. Anyway, uh, thanks again for joining me. If you have any feedback, feel free to email mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com or you can tweet M-A-T-T-S-G-O-T blog on Twitter and uh, three word submissions brothel mates of the episode submissions for any episode through season one is more than welcome if you just have thoughts about how I can improve the podcast um, maybe we can do that and please folks just go to mattsaudioblog.com follow the links to whatever podcast app that you generally use or that you have an ID for. And please leave me a written review. That's the only way that I'm going to stay in the top whatever, how many searches that uh, the main Game of Thrones engine allows. Because I don't think it's very possible to, to stay up there unless you're continually getting a certain number of, of ratings on a weekly basis. So please uh, check that out for me. I really, really appreciate it um, because I want this podcast not to become popular for my own vanity, although that is part of it. I just want this podcast to become popular so that we have a bigger community from which to pull great ideas during our rewatch and during season eight of Game of Thrones when it comes out sometime next year. Anyway. Hope you all had a great holiday in the United States. For those of you who are in any part of the world that doesn't celebrate this kind of holiday, I hope you had a good Monday. Take care.